I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, on November the 22nd, 2007. For those newcomers, please look into my website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and download as much of the material as you wish, and pass it around, and also look into Alan Watt sentinel.eu for transcripts you can you can find them in various tongues of Europe. We're on quite the, the, the roller coaster ride this particular generation because so many things are happening at one time. And I never pick the topics before I go on. I just sit down here a couple of minutes before the time I, I speak and something pops into my head because there's always so much in your head anyway if we bother to use it. And I was thinking about uh, the incredible changes we've seen in this generation, uh, the, the ones who are still in their 40s and so on, 50s, how they've seen the, the amazing advances in science, thinking that they lived through the advances, but not knowing that these sciences were, in fact, discovered long, long ago, often before they were born, and that science as we know it is just dished out piecemeal by those who control it at the top. That's why the lower um, orders of things do research. They do research, they search again. It means the searching was already done. It was already searched long ago. And there's nothing new in this because knowledge is power and so is technology. Technology in the advance of science means that those who control it have power. Whatever is given to the public is technically obsolete. And we saw this through the 70s when whole countries in Europe were being laid off as their, their systems were being deindustrialized, And the unemployment agencies and the government agencies were putting people through courses for retraining in computer and various forms of computer technology and programming. Only you find out, of course, that a couple of months after they qualified, they were obsolete because everything had changed again and again. And that they could have given you the final version even back in the 70s, even something the size of a chip if they wanted to. But they decided, no, we always accept things in a gradual fashion, so they dish it out piecemeal, teach us all to type, and that replaces talking to people. And that becomes your new world to an extent. And you pay and pay and pay because you must always profit from the sheep if you're the good shepherd. The purpose of the shepherd in every society, in all ages, has to be convince the sheep that their direction and the direction of the shepherd are both uh, really in the same direction. Their interests are in the same direction. That's the corn game, you see. But really, if you're the sheep, you have one purpose or two, really. One is to feed them and another one is to clothe them. That's your purpose. You're an owned animal. And that brings me back to even what Karl Marx talked about and Lenin and others, where they said that all, all labor creates, it creates, it makes things. And that's the only system of wealth there can be. So all the wealth came from the people. And that's always been this way, even from the, the, the pre-Phoenicians onwards. The, the wealth came from the people. The Phoenicians had factory towns along the Mediterranean coast thousands of years ago, where there were people who worked in them were slaves. And nothing really changes. It's all how you perceive things. And we, we don't realize that slaves in ancient times could still, in their spare time, even had spare time, some of them, in certain societies like Greece and Rome, 
that they could have little businesses on the side to get ahead of the other slaves. And sometimes they could even buy off and, and buy their freedom. That was quite acceptable. Today we're much the same. We are called wage slaves because we work for this odd thing called money, which we have no control over. And even when you think you've, you've like a squirrel, you've stored up enough nuts, uh, they can declare tomorrow those nuts are useless and give you a different kind of, of food or money, and uh, you start all over again. That's how safe all this stuff is for you. It's not meant to be permanent for you. It's meant to keep you always on the edge, so that like all all neurosis, you have an exaggerated need for for something way beyond your actual physical needs at all. And some people just save up and save up and save up. And you'll find most most arguments in society, even between people and parents and so on, it's, it's about money. There's never enough, especially when they dangle all the toys in front of you. So that's, that is the system, really. It's a form of slavery. And Charles Galton Darwin, the grandson of Charlie Darwin, who was a real sweetheart, all of the Darwins were real sweethearts, these characters, uh, they believed that they were amongst... Uh, many members of the elite of their day because of their selective breeding. They specially selected their wives and often married into the same families for many generations to try and keep not not a wealth together, not plenty of wealth, but clearly to keep what they thought were superior genes and superior intellects. And there's nothing new in eugenics. Uh, the ancient kings and queens of every ancient country intermarried with their sisters and cousins and so on because they, they were always very, very racist and always into eugenics. That's the, the civilization all done through the ages. And nothing has changed today. Uh, the commoners is the column. Commoner is a very important word because with a system that originated in Asia and the Middle East a long, long time ago, uh, that had run ancient civilizations, when they came into Europe, they brought this system with them of kings and queens and and the whole idea was to base it upon almost a reflection of the sky. And so they gave religions to the public to believe in. And they knew how to do this because the priests they brought with them uh, had the archives of how they created religions in the past for thousands of years in the Middle East and Asia. So therefore, they gave a hierarchy in the heavens with a deity at the top and then a, a hierarchy of angel types that ran different affairs in their own little world, all the way down to to this pyramid base, and then you had the reverse of it down below. So you would have you would have uh, a king who would represent the god on earth, and then he would have his advisors and his courtly knights and so on, all the way down to represent the angels, and, and that was called the natural order. And they made the public believe this. And the people themselves who bred willy-nilly, because generally they were running on hormones, which is nature, that's nature's way, and they didn't select that their mates for higher intellect or whatever else, it's hormones, hormones picked them. They were called commoners, and the commoners were called commoners because they chose their partners in common from the common, the common wealth. They were the stock, you see, breeding stock. And the land that they lived on, after especially the Normans came in with the, this system full-blown, the land that the commoners lived on was called the commons. The commons uh, was the only land eventually left to them to grow their food on, 
the rest of the time they, they could work for their lords and produce on big farms that the lords owned. But for themselves, to feed themselves even, they had to still grow on these scrubby places they called the commons, often the worst land there was. And that was the feudal system. And that was the beginning, uh, as we know it, of the takeover and the creation of private property. The commoners were left with a scrub to have in common and they'd bring their goats or sheep on and so on. Uh, but the elite had the big farms and they made the peasants work the farms and the, the, the lords would take all the grain, etc., and use what they wanted and pass it up the ladder to their king at the top. That was used like a form of taxation. So people have always been used as slaves under, and they give it many different names and titles to camouflage it, but it's always the same system. And Charles Galton Darwin, in his book, The Next Million Years, comes out quite openly and honestly about it, uh, and it's good to listen to these psychopaths because they often tell you a truth, uh, unbashedly, unabashedly, and, and Charles Galton Darwin said, there's always existed a form of slavery, or slavery in one form or, or another. And we, we, being the, the aristocracies, not just of Britain, but of Europe, it says we are creating a, a, a new, more sophisticated form of slavery. And what he meant was a form of slavery that the public would never figure out. That's why we had all the propaganda to be proud of your nation and so on, and you thought you were part of it. And they trained you all to believe your governments really represented you, the people. And uh, this was all really during the Cold War era, or coming into it, because his book was published in the 1950s, the next million years. And it was to convince a generation uh, that they really had rights and that somehow the history of, of their country belonged to them. And it never had. Uh, that in fact, their countries had never belonged to them at all. They were run by a feudal system that only gave this type of so-called democracy as a reaction to the Chartist movement. In fact, they paid the top Chartists to lead the movement to make the public believe they had a thing called democracy where they could vote because they realized if they didn't do this, there'd be revolutions every four or five years. So they, they, they knew that if they gave them this thing called democracy and the public caught on to the corruption of their government that they voted in, uh, they didn't vote the next bunch in instead and kick the last lot out and not have a revolution. You live in hope. It gave you hope. So democracy is all about living in hope. You live in dreams and fantasy. And as Professor Carl Quigley has said, who fills in all the little blank spots of the history and goes into the feudal system too, uh, working, and he was the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations uh, for the United States, but also for the Royal Institute for International Affairs from Britain. That's the, that's the granddaddy of the CFR. It's all the same club. And he talks about this in his book, the next, he talks about that in Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, the two books really. And how they were bringing together this, this aristocracy of the natural aristocracy, the themselves, uh, a world, uh, there would be a new type of feudal system. Feudalism would, would, would basically evolve into a new type of, of feudalism where the corporate CEOs, the CEOs of the big corporations internationally, would be the new overlords of society. And then they could abolish the, 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 even the idea of democracy. They wouldn't need it anymore because they could train a generation that didn't really need it, you see. And for a 
while, during from the 50s and 60s, sure enough, they, they, they pushed the unemployment uh, um, pay out to people that had never had that before. They pushed a form of, of basic health care in a lot of countries like Canada and the British Commonwealth countries and, uh, and pumped some money into it. Of course, prior to that, the, the government system really took all your money on behalf of royalty. But that it gives some back and give you an idea that somehow you were getting, it was your country, it was your world, it was your system. And it had lots of propaganda to back that up. And for a while, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It actually worked. People did get payouts. They could pay the rent when they were laid off or fired or whatever. And they could get some retraining. But this was during the Cold War era as well. And the idea was that the CIA for the United States and MI6 for Britain, with MI5, MI5 is just like the, MI, the, the FBI side of it, MI6 is international, they, they would control the culture itself of Britain. Everything that went into culture, they control it all and, and show that they were just as good to the working man as the Soviets were. That was the idea of it. And they even brought out very far left parties and, and, and funded the arts and all the rest of it, radical left-wing arts. They even told the artists to be radically left-wing. And an idea was that they were going to show the Soviets they could be far, far more socialist than the Soviets were. And this is all, all actually admitted to now. These are declassified documents. And in the U.S., the CIA was doing the same thing. They employed artists to do nihilistic paintings and, and, and then uh, have the governments buy them for millions of dollars and, uh, and put awful kinds of music and stuff like that. And certain groups were, were led up the garden path to an extent too, something often willingly, by allowing uh, certain people to write the wording, the lyrics for their, their particular songs. Because this was meant to be the psychedelic era where drugs would help reinforce the cultural change but it wasn't a cultural change they were looking for. It was a cultural change the elite themselves had decided were going to be brought about. You will find that pretty well everything in your life has been given to your thoughts, your ideas, even your, your hobbies. Hobbies are just that those things which are approved from the top that are harmless. They don't really affect anything. The fads that you go through, even the fashions, because Plato talked about the whole thing, fashion, music, um, uh, the, the written word, all these things, um, and, and play acting on stages before the people mimic what they say, they mimic the behavior of the actors, and they act it out in real, real life. Uh, all these things were discussed thousands of years ago, and they're well understood. So all during the Cold War era, uh, Britain and France and a few other countries, they don't realize that, uh, and the U.S., uh, they all had their culture given to them. Uh, and and the, the intelligence services were, had special departments on it. I'll be back with more of this after the following messages. Listening to We the People Radio Network. 
Hi folks, Alan Watt back with Cutting Through the Matrix, and before we go on to the next little thing I'm going to talk about, which continues from the last part I talked about, I'll talk to Mark from Illinois. Are you there, Mark? Are you there, Mark? Mark from okay. Illinois? Yeah, this is Mark. Can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been uh, listening to you since you've uh, you've started this Thursday night show, and I'm really impressed with your show. And yeah. I just had a quick question for you. It's a little off-topic, but um, are you familiar with the author named Naomi Wolf? She was a Rhodes Scholar, and she just published a book called uh, The End of America, A Letter to Young Patriots. I, I know the name, but I haven't read that book, no. Well, I, have, I haven't read either, but I, I saw her on YouTube where she had this speech, in it, and it caught me, and I just want to know if she can be trusted. <laughs> she, she's, a Rhodes, she's a Rhodes Scholar. Well, that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, and but she's, uh, she was talking about the, you know, which she makes good points that America, you know, under the Bush administration is starting to become a closed society. And she had these ten steps, which, which we see, you know, uh, happening every day. One, like invoking a terrorist internal and external enemy, you know, creating a, uh, a gulag system. Yeah. And um, but you don't, don't realize, though. No, she's just doing what she's told to do. You, you'll find that the U.S. was preparing for this long before Bush uh, got into office. Yeah. All, all you're living through is part of an agenda that was planned a long time ago. They were writing about this in the newspapers back in the 70s and the 80s, and all the little declarations that were given out to the mainstream media by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and they talked about the end of the Cold War would come up eventually, and the kind of society they'd have to bring about to, to keep control of the public and all the Western nations. They also talked about the unification of the Americas, and again, the dis- the, the, how to control the dissidents that would arise during that whole era. And the same thing would happen in Britain when they found out they were actually being integrated into a new system with a new authority over their heads uh, based uh, in the new parliament in Brussels. So all this was actually published, and people see this kind of stuff, but they don't want to believe it. And um, uh, occasionally they'll pick authors uh, that are well-known or they belong to the right club, and they give them permission to go out and republish the same stuff again. It's kind of like republishing stuff after the horse is bolted. You're shutting the door after it's bolted because they were preparing for this with even mass camps to put people in and all the rest of it back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen the... You know, I've seen pictures and videos of uh, of the the, the the detention centers yep. that, um, and actually, you know, I saw one in Hawaii. It was right next to the airport, and I was, it was no par- cars were in the parking lot when I was there. And I said, "Wow, this is interesting," because I went around the back side of the airport when I was on vacation there and saw this huge thing that was said detention center, but there were no windows. There were the windows were literally only four inches wide and four feet tall, but you couldn't. It, it was. It was interesting that you couldn't see in the building, and there were no. It was just a complete building that that basically that I didn't see any cars parked at that that was fully operational. I guess. Yes, and I think it was about oh maybe twelve years ago or more. Uh, I think it was a popular science magazine published the new com- the new airliner that would come in. This huge thing, much much bigger than jumbo jets were. 
and it would go internationally carrying prisoners from one country to the other. That would be his main job. Yeah. Hey, so we well, see all this thing. They actually let it out little by little. And uh, legally, they're telling us, they tell us every step that they're bringing in. It's just that the, the general public, they don't want to hear it. You know, they don't want to hear the bad news. No, it, no they, they don't. And, 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 I, and I, it's amazing that I can see a caste system starting right now with the kind of foods, like, like a Whole Foods just opened up in, in my neighborhood. And if you want to go and you want to buy a, a unradiated, you know, non-GMO food, the yeah. price difference from that, that store and the local grocery store that sells all the radiated, you know, the radiated uh-huh. food is so yeah. much, so much different. So if you're a working adult and you're barely making ends meet, you're not going to be able to to buy the the unradiated, un-GMO right. food. You've got it. You've got it. And, uh, so the wealthy, the wealthy individuals that live in the, the huge houses eat mm-hmm. better food than the poor individuals. That's right. And then and the poor, the, the people that are the even poor are mm-hmm. the real poor people. That, well, they're just getting, they're just getting yes. no, no nutrition. That's right. I, I watched a program a, a couple of years ago on Britain and the other royal families of Europe. They, they still have their old feudal farms. I mean, hundreds. I, mean, I think even Prince Charles is in trouble. I don't know how many hundreds of, of small farms he still owns. They're traditional uh, tenant farmers. And... Uh, that's where they get all their food from. They eat personally. And, and the, even the cattle they have on it, too, have, don't have the inoculations, etc., or, or fed the, the, the nonsense that, that uh, regular domestic cattle get fed. They already have their food supply for themselves. And Tony Blair, when he came under fire for trying to push the modified food, the genetically modified vegetables and so on, onto the British people, um, he forced it through and said you're going to get it regardless. And he, the one exception he made, though, was for all the MPs uh, that came into the huge restaurant they have and, at, at, uh, at Parliament Building there for the members of Parliament. So, yeah, you're right enough. It's, like, it's, a, it's a class system. Uh, it's, it's quite blatant. And the stuff has been modified to dumb us down. We've been bioengineered, actually. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, thank you for getting the word out. Like, I don't, you know, I don't even let my kids drink out of plastic water bottles. Anymore. Good for you. And Good um, for you. I try to get the better food. And uh, and um, as soon as I get uh, paid this week, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna order your books. And uh, I just wanted to say I really appreciate what you're doing. But I know that when I heard that that lady speaking, and then as soon as she said, she, you know, she was a Rhodes Scholar. I, I kind of knew right away that you know you can't trust any of those people. Those they went down a different path. Were, were selected out of, out of yes, they're actually they're also psychologically tested. Not, it's not just a matter of an intellect. Uh, it's uh, their prime reason for being selected is being involved in social activities. That means like a, a, a politics, social type politics for for socialism. See, is to deal with the mass man, which they want. They want leaders for the mass man. So if you've been involved in university with that, that's one point towards being asked to be a road scholar. The second point is the ability to be completely ruthless when required. So they have a ruthless streak in them. They're, they have a psychopathic streak in them. Yeah. That's why they pick road scholars. Well, I, I wish we didn't have to live through these times, but, you know, I can, uh, you know, I, you can feel it every day. Yes, I know. Hey, well, Alan, thanks again for your time, and you have a good day, and, and uh, thanks a lot for what you're doing. And thanks for calling. All right, bye-bye.
And we have George from Illinois on next to you there, George. Yes, Sam. Thanks, Alan, for taking my call. I've, uh, I wanted to follow up on what you spoke about earlier, about the advanced technologies which are uh, released incrementally. Yeah. I had a, a very interesting experience, I think, with, which ties into what you were saying. Uh, this uh, New Year's Eve, I went to a party. I was invited by you know a friend of a friend. I didn't really know these people, folks. But it was a very strange collection of people. It was uh, They started you know talking kind of freely and openly. I guess they thought they were all like tight buddies. And uh, I was one of the few people that didn't know anyone. And uh, they, it turns out that these people were all, uh, or many of them were, uh, government uh, agents of some sort. Uh, there was one person that was a special forces sniper, and uh, another one was a, a Navy SEAL. A third one was uh, working for NASA. He used to be. He's an older gentleman. And uh, what I found it interesting, uh, this was a really, these people were wealthy, you could tell. They're, just their travels and everything, they, they've been everywhere. The whole... The whole house was like a taxidermist uh, laboratory, a shop. Yeah. yeah. I'll hold on and I'll be back with you after these messages. All right. Great host, great topics, free speech at its best. This is We the People Radio Network.
1971, it was a license. Uh, according to him, they had been using it and kind of mastered it by 1967. Yep. According to the records, the, the, uh, uh, PlasmaTVScience.org, which uh, documents the whole history of the plasma screen, it says that it was they were collecting data in 1967. Yeah, he says yeah. they were using it full throttle in on covert projects. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, what you said is right on. I mean, um, it comes from the and, and this is what I understand. There's a pattern here. University of Illinois Foundation has this massive collection of studied projects, which they don't release until they're ready. Uh, yeah. There's a gentleman called Charles Mir Miriam from this foundation who's the chair of the board, and he kind of holds all the patents, and then he grants them exclusively to specific firms. That's right. That's right. You, this is what the beauty of this whole system, and this is, again, how they use the universities. They, they give little grants and scatter it all across and have them work on specific parts of a project, and once they come up and perfect something, uh, they take the rights of it, the patent, and so on, because they funded it through the universities, plus your taxpayer money uh, funded it, and then they give it to their bodies, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's really a payoff. It's kind of, it's all about money and everything and, and kind of special favors. Owen, Illinois got the exclusive rights uh, to Glass Company, mm -hmm. and so they got the project. And I find that there's another uh, kind of attached, very prominent article in there that is very disturbing. It says, the title of the, uh, the headline of the article says, Vision Plate to Replace Television. And then it keeps making these references, which are coded for other things. But it, here's what it says. Information technology, infrared technology is going to be used to uh, for more direct access, but it doesn't tell you what access. Yeah. I think they're trying to get into the mind a little deeper. Oh, oh they, they, they already have the equipment uh, ready to go uh, to, for, for brain chips and all the rest of it. And they've said that it will be, uh, you'll be trackable by... Uh, all the, the cell phone towers all around cities, all the little booster antennas, etc. And the banks have now, hold on, the banks have also just announced up here in Canada, uh, the, the next card they bring out for your debit card or whatever will have an active chip in it that also, uh, I mean, it's active, it's read from a distance by these, these scanners. In other words, they can track you through that as well. And they're going cashless. They mentioned that too with it. Uh, this is, the, the cash is, is going to get phased out over the next year or so. Okay. I just wanted to mention that uh, it just kind of reinforces the, you know, what you were saying. You saw the pattern, and, and here's an example of that directly. And I just happened to stumble upon it. But he wouldn't. I, I don't think he would have told anyone unless he thought you know I was someone they could trust. But he didn't know me, unfortunately for him. Yeah. So, anyway, thanks, Alan. I really appreciate your hard work. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for calling. <laughs> yeah. You, you can get into these parties in odd sort of ways, and and I've been to a couple in my life like that. And um, at one time I was asked to, to, to sing at a big concert. And uh, a girl asked me, and I didn't know she was a member of, uh, I guess it was the hardest far-left communist party you'd, you'd imagine. And after the show, uh, I was sitting there with uh, all the, the singers, etc., and the people who ran this organization. And a guy came in all the way from Moscow University uh, who lived in California, and he was English from England. And uh, he took for granted I was one of them, and he was giving them their instructions for for integrating and, and um, all the different factions of society together into one cohesive force, and teaching them. and And I asked him a couple of questions, and I said, "Well, you just come from Moscow University. This is in the Cold War." And he says, "Yeah." I says, "Don't you ever get stopped? I mean, they must know who you are." 
and he gave me a strange look because no one had asked him that obvious question before. Uh, he didn't get stopped, and that's when I caught on to the fact that it was all a con game anyway. Um, if, if, the Cold, if the Cold War was so real, you would not allow uh, a trained agitator in and, and pass through countries back and forth so quickly and easily without ever getting stopped. So that's how life was run. They, they ran both sides of the Cold War, and that was verified in a book by Perry called The Fifth Man, and it was also verified by, uh, I think it was Peter Wright, in a book called Spycatcher, his second book. He worked for MI5 and 6, and uh, Peter Wright was brought into court by Margaret Thatcher because everyone who works for these organizations signs the Official Secrets Act, and you're not allowed to disclose anything for, for 30 years after you retire. Well, it means you're generally dead. So beware of the guys who come out saying they just left this or that, and they come out with all this stuff. They're generally still paid agents. But Peter Wright was put into the high court and, and tried, and Maggie Thatcher grabbed the A to Z of Spycatcher, his second book, and ordered it all be pulped back into back into pulp again. And that's what they did. But he, he, he basically said the same thing. He was pointing and giving you clues in Spycatcher, or the, the first book, Spycatcher, of who was behind it, and he could not figure out for a while why uh, MI5 and 6 passed on their data to only one source after they were finished with it on their upcoming activities, catching spies and so on. And the next day when they went to get the spy, um, he'd be tipped off and he'd fled the country. That's when they clued in that it was run from the higher source above them. Both sides were run from the higher source above them. And the biggest suspect was uh, Victor Rothschild. Uh, Victor Rothschild had been a, a scientist uh, and uh, during the war, and he got the top positions in the ported-down uh, bacterial and viral laboratories after the war. He was in charge of that. And all the top spies that were double agents, he just happened to have recruited them and it all lived in his house's borders, and that's where they were trained, basically, all high uh, Cambridge and Oxford University students. So the, the prime suspect, eventually, Victor Rothschild, was given command over all the internal security forces, and that's why Peter Wright brought his book out. He's trying to give you the clues that the whole thing was rigged. There was a third party running both sides of the Cold War. They didn't want accidents to happen. Uh, one party, one puppeteer was at the top, this other group. And if you tie that into uh, uh, Carl Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American establishment, you'll start to make sense of it, because right in the book there he says, we, the Council on Foreign Relations, or Royal Army for International Affairs, uh, have recruits from who are dictators, some are communists, some are Trotskyites. He says, we don't care who they are, uh, they don't mind recruiting all sides into this one organization. And this is the organization that laid out the plan for the unification of the Americas and gave it to the politicians to sign. They drafted it up. They publicized that on mainstream media here in Canada. And that's your democracy for you. There is no democracy. That's the bottom line. And now there's no Cold War either. Even to, They don't have to pretend to give you goodies and unemployment and higher benefits. They just take it all away from you gradually until you have this rock-bottom service where if you need treatment in Canada, you better have the money to get over to the States to have it done in the medical sense. That's what we live in. That's a real society. But there's a, a site here I'll put a link to tonight, and it's from the Westminster News Group. 
in Britain, and it's owned by David Noakes in England. Uh, in this site, and I'll mention more about this particular site from Britain after the following messages.
whereas the 465-page EU constitution would have abolished the five treaties and replaced them with a single document with absolute power. The reform treaty adds to the existing five treaties, bringing them up to the powers of the EU constitution. All six treaties with appendices will add up to something like 100,000 complex and unreadable pages. That's how they do it, all brand new laws and rights and all lack of them. The EU remains illegal. Each of these six treaties are completely illegal under the British Constitution and the, the 1689 Bill of Rights are treason laws and under common law. It's unforgivable. The Queen, her ministers and her parliaments have committed the criminal act of treason by signing these treaties and broken our laws to abolish our nation. The EU will always be illegal in Britain, but once the EU has complete power and control here, we can no more get rid of it than we could Germany had their planned illegal occupation of Britain in 1940 been successful. You've got one year left. Treason is the most serious of all Britain's crimes. If just one year left to bring these vile British traitors to justice, I don't know how that would happen, and get us out of the EU dictatorship. Around 45 million British people are against the abolition of the nation, and with the little European voting that has been allowed, it seems clear over 200 million of its victims don't want the EU. But we will never be given the choice. And it's true they won't be given a choice. It's a done deal. It was done before we'd even heard of it because they set up the offices for integration in 1948. There are ways to stop the EU, uh, see your campaigns on the left and so on, and then show you all the different copies of the, the EU's timetable on this particular site. And they give you the original 2009 article from German Parliament, the PDF for download free as well. And you can check it at the German Parliament right from this particular site. This is where we are now. Since 1972, the Queen has signed five of the six EU treaties. The five treaties define and build the EU as an unelected dictatorship, which it is actually. The EU laws passed by Westminster give it the powers of a police state. See, we were, I'm reading this because this is just uh, the first one uh, that's going down, and the second one is already underway in the U.S. and Canada. We're seeing the same thing here. The EU's laws passed by Westminster give it the powers of a police state. The sixth EU treaty will complete the abolition of Britain as a nation, which the Queen signs next year. A foreign power, the EU will then rule us and enforce the laws of a police state. So he has all the different sites you can go to to try and complain. I don't really see anything. It will never happen because, you see, there's never been a democracy. Uh, that's just uh, that's what people are starting to realize. At least some are starting to realize there's never been a democracy. You live a script. The script is written before you're born, like a long-term projected business plan with implementation dates for every part of, of the stages set and departments already working on them. And that's how they can bring all of this off so easily and swiftly uh, without the public even being aware of it. We adapt, as Plato said, we're the most adaptable species on the planet. And with every little change that we're given, we adapt so quickly and, and, and it becomes normal. Everything becomes normal. Whatever abnormality is can be made normal and then it's normal. And that's again what Plato said. That's why these boys always quote Plato at the top. They all read Plato for the, the, the Republic, the book called The Republic, this perfect world where this aristocracy, they call them the guardian class, will run and rule the world. 
and the commoners will be bred for their tasks, actually bred like animals for their tasks, be interbred, specially designed for their tasks. And that's what we've seen happen in our own lifetime as they go through all of this particular agenda. But most folk won't care because in most ages, I don't think people have ever really, really cared. Um, it's always been up to the few who understand what's happening to thwart, at least delay, or or push off in their direction uh, how society is going. And you don't give up and, and breathe a sigh of relief if you get your way, because these characters don't stop. They don't give up. They don't give up. I, I laugh often at the U.S. when they're always quoting the Constitution and talking about the Founding Fathers, and they don't realize that you can't go to sleep. You, you cannot go to sleep because these characters are right in the, in the back door as, as, as soon as you're, you shut the front door. And the agenda goes forth again. And when, you, when they give you wars, it's the greatest technique for making you fatigued. No one wants ongoing war. And society is so disrupted. You want to get back with your, your wife or your husband, or whatever today's wife or husband or whatever. And you want uh, what you think is a normal life. And when you're doing that, you're, 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 you're relaxing. That's when they do all the dirty deeds. When you're relaxing and they push things through because you, you can't be bothered uh, put your hand up in the air to, 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 to deny and say no uh, you, you want peace and quiet that, that's how they work it and that's why after World War II and remember the H.G. Wells after World War I you got the League of Nations the embryo of the United Nations for global government but it said the public haven't quite given up the idea of sovereignty of nations we will need another war to make it happen and so they gave you World War II and sure enough, after that, after World War II, they really went to, to town to change society, give you a brand new culture, created even the term teenager to give them a specific upbringing, separate them from the parents, indoctrinate them with a new state-approved value system, and we see the outcome today. But here's another little news item here, and it's from Democracy Now!, this is from Thursday, November the 20th, 2007. Something else that hasn't been talked about much. Homegrown Terrorism Prevention Act raises fears of new government crackdown on dissent. And it says a little known, a uh, little noticed anti-terrorism bill quietly making its way through Congress is raising fears of a new affront on activism and constitutional rights. The Violent Radicalization and Homegrown Terrorism Prevention Act was passed in an overwhelming 400-6 House vote last month. Critics say it could herald a new government crackdown on dissident activity under the guise of fighting terrorism. And I'll scroll down here to get the, the rest of this, because it's quite a long one, actually. And it goes on to say, um, the bill would establish two government-appointed bodies to study, monitor, and propose ways of curbing what it calls homegrown terrorism and extremism in the United States. The first body, a national commission, convened for 18 months. And we'll be back with the rest of the story after the following messages.